The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Ross Gerber, who I know a lot of you have seen over the years, outspoken when it comes to a lot of different parts of the tech space. But Ross, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? How did you get involved in interested in markets? And what are you doing at your firm? Well, hi. Welcome, everybody. My name is Ross Gerber. I'm president and CEO of Gerber Kawasaki. And basically, we're a financial advisory firm. And so we help individuals and small business owners and families build their financial plans. And we work with all types of people in my firm serves about 12,000 clients. We have about 20,000 accounts and manage about $2.2 billion. We focus on technology investing, the consumer and climate change type investments. Unfortunately, one of the areas we do focus on is AI and, and computer chips and automation. So this has been a pretty good run for us the last couple of days, week. And then I also run the GK Fund, which is listed on the New York Stock Exchange, symbol GK. And there is that's sort of all of our uh, about 35 growth names focused around those three main themes and then a couple other random things. So I've been managing money. Now I'm on my I'm actually coming on my 29 year anniversary, finishing my 29th year investing for the public, you know, being a professional money manager. And I've been investing since I was 13. And some of the good investments I've made in my career have been Tesla, NVIDIA, and Netflix, for example, where I was an early investor in those types of securities. So that's my I feel like we need to properly define what technology investing means nowadays, because the reality is everything is technology, right? So is it technology? Is it innovation? How do you think about the proper way to, to define what technology investing should be? Well, that's a great question because, you know, we were talking about a business like Toast, which I don't own, which I really love this business. And that's a technology for restaurants. And it's super efficient and really helps restaurants increase margins and such. It's a technology. But buying the actual restaurant is a restaurant that maybe is tech-enabled. Maybe they're you know adapting new technologies, but it's still a restaurant. And what we've seen is there's two sides to tech innovation. There are the tech players that are actually driving the innovation, which may or may not be a good investment depending on whether those businesses are profitable. And then obviously the businesses where technology has a dramatic impact and efficiencies, like what we're seeing with our MGM Resorts holding, which is one of our top investments in Vegas, where technology in the hotel industry has created just tremendous efficiencies compared to where it was pre-pandemic. And so 
many companies actually can really vastly increase productivity and margins through proper investments in technology. So the winners with technology can often vary between tech companies and the users of that technology. I think that's a valid point. I, I, I do also think there's a question of can technology and innovation, users of technology, can that replace, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, relationships? Okay, so you mentioned you've got 20,000 accounts. You've obviously built a very successful RIA and you know, a lot of congrats on that. But you, know, you and I both know when you're doing SMAs, the more relationships you have, the more you have to scale with people to manage those relationships. Talk about sort of the interaction of the perception around technology replacing, for example, our jobs and the reality of people want to do business with people. Yeah. So so my views on this are certainly my views and many people might disagree with it, but I'm in my heart, you know, I'm a deadhead Buddhist in my heart. So I absolutely don't believe technology can replace the most important things in life. And in fact, what it's really meant to do is enhance relationships enhance experiences and not replace them. You know, sort of the difference between like going to a concert or watching the concert on VR. Not to say that watching the concert on VR isn't a bad thing if you can't actually go to the concert or it's in England, but going to the concert is always going to be more fun. I mean, it just, it is what it is. So I'm a big believer that we have this vibrant life that we all have that's way better than the life that these technology people have. Like, most people live very vibrant lives. And, you know, I was out this weekend and, you know, by the Santa Monica Pier, it was like Disneyland. I mean, people are out there like crazy taking their kids out and doing fun things. So nothing will ever replace human interaction and relationships because humans are animals and we're actually social animals. And we really enjoy being around other humans for the most part, as long as they're unarmed. And so it's like, I see it as, you know, everybody gets all excited about all these technologies replacing humans, but a lot of the reasons people invest with my firm, for example, and work with me is simply to have a human to talk to. And it's not about the markets. It's about their life and like what's happening in their life and how their financial plan is affected by these things like losing a job or getting married or having a kid and what are the best options and solutions for them. And that's something ChatGTP will never be able to do because it will never understand, let's say, the intonation between a husband and a wife. So I'm a big believer that technology is a wonderful enhancement to our lives if used correctly, but it can be a tremendous detriment. Yeah, and arguably it's going to cause a shift in sort of what's valued and what's not, which gets into the name of the space, which is, you know, what's real and what's hype. Now, right, so a lot right. of people are, 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 you know, and I think it's some element of truth this would argue that AI in its most extreme, it's going to replace pretty much every job imaginable. My pushback to that would be, Okay, fine. You might be able to use AI to get answers, but going back to people who want to do business with people, those that are more charismatic, they're good salespeople. Those people will never get replaced by AI, right? Yeah, or or my plumber. Right, exactly. Right, where or it's like something that's very kind of specific, and it's going to be in the moment, and you need a physical presence, barring rope. Yeah, like my sink stopped working, and we needed the plumber to come right away. I certainly knew what was wrong with it, so the AI could have analyzed the whole thing. But the two guys come and they're under the sink working. And it would be even hard for a robot to do what they were doing because it's just a pain and hard to work under there. And I looked at those two guys and I said, you're probably not going to lose your job to AI. You know what I mean? And they were laughing because they knew I was right because, you know, very few people can crawl under sinks and do these things and want to do them and do them well. So I think the construction industry, there's areas of efficiency with all this stuff, but it's not going to replace people. So that said, 
at my firm right now, we use ChatGTP every day. So it's already a part of my process. Like search seems super inefficient to me now compared to using Bard and ChatGTP. When I want to find information about companies or specific issues with regard to securities, I'm just going straight to AI now. I don't even waste my time with search. So I think it's already being implemented by businesses across many industries in many different ways that are going to be hugely profitable and efficient. And just the same, there's just a ton of hype around it too. All right, so, so let's dive deep. I've been having a lot of fun the last you know, several days just poking fun at NVIDIA just from the standpoint of I think the valuation is stupid. And in the context of everything else around NVIDIA, the poor breath, market dynamics, it's like all this seems like it's more hype. And a lot of people pointed out to me that that's fine, but I'm up twenty million on it in the last two days. Yeah, no, listen, I, uh, and Kuda, what I would say is that uh, you know, you and I both know that a lot of people can make money in manias, right? Which we can debate whether it's a mania or not. Yeah. Question is, can you keep it? Right? That's sort of always kind of where the. And right. I mean, you and Absolutely. you, right? I mean, just as a general statement. Right? No, but that's the game, right? That's the game, right? So a lot of people have shown me screenshots when I say, you know, listen, AI is not a new dynamic. They show these screenshots of these like video YouTube videos, documentaries from like three years ago talking about how AI has changed the world. First of all, lay out for the audience sort of the real evolution of AI because everyone's talking about it like it's suddenly a brand new dynamic just because of ChatGPT, but the reality is it's been around for some time. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, I mean... You can actually argue that IBM was really like one of the leaders in this area with Watson, you know, already beating people with chess programs many years ago. You know, like that isn't even recent, like that is old. And really for AI, from the solutions that I've been working on, it has been around autonomy. So for me, autonomy through Tesla was really the AI project that I've been most focused on as an investor and as like a student of technology. And what Tesla is doing is unique in every way because it was actually the first real world AI technology use that actually could save tons of lives and make the world hugely efficient. And obviously Tesla's valuation soared once investors realized that this was not just an EV company. And NVIDIA was always the driver of the chips behind AI. It was the first chips that autonomous drivers have used and autonomous driving companies have used for now many years. So NVIDIA was actually the chips Tesla used to use until Tesla started designing its own chips and manufacturing them through third parties. And so every other car company actually uses NVIDIA chips and an NVIDIA system for autonomy. And this is kind of the crazy thing because the chat GTP, everyone's like, oh, NVIDIA, oh, NVIDIA. And I was like, wait, it was NVIDIA during crypto? NVIDIA was originally a gaming company, which is what got me into NVIDIA many years ago. But what we learned from the GPUs from gaming was like it went to crypto mining and it was like, oh, these GPUs are smart. And then they can like interpret vision systems like in autonomy 
with like Mobileye systems and then Tesla systems. And then it was like, oh, now we have a commercial application for what's a, really just a part of AI, which they're calling ge- generative AI, which is really about large language models, like actually being able to spit out information back to you versus like anything else. And what it was, was it was the first time that consumers really got their hands on a product that was useful in AI. And that's what kind of set it to the next level. But the development of AI products and services has been going on for a long time. But really, I would say in the last five years, have mostly because of the power of the GPUs that NVIDIA was building and the ability for companies like Tesla to apply that power in a way where it could learn. And that's really what's incredible. So if you really want to see AI in real motion, it's Tesla full self-driving, which the new version that just came out this weekend, it just gets better. And you like watch this development and it's insanely good already. And so we're going to see a lot of AI applications over the next five years as we've now hit a critical mass. Somebody sent me a chart showing price to sales of NVIDIA and showing that it has these cycles where it's like, you know, peaks up around the time of, you know, to your point, video game chips hype, then a peak to your point around crypto. And then kind of at the same price of sales level now with AI being sort of the the next major focus point, the narrative. I do want people to understand that price to sales isn't a good way to look at NVIDIA's valuation because their margins are so high. And so when you have a 70% operating margin, price to sales isn't the best metric to use. It's a convenient metric because it looks wildly out of place. But really, the metric that matters is earnings per share, and the estimates are now for $7 a share. So if it's trading at 400 and you're getting $7 a share with $9 the year after, which is probably wildly low, maybe $10. So like you could say 40 times you know, two years from now earnings. So you could say, oh, it's really expensive, which it is. I don't think that's a debate, but it's not like outrageously expensive either. I get that. And again, I've been having fun with it because it, it's creating a lot of engagement <laughs> on Twitter. Right? Yeah, talk. a lot of talk. Yeah, I think lot it's, of talk. it's the hot yeah. top. But I think there's a difference, though, between those kind of periods and now, which is that the surrounding environment looks a lot different, right? So I've used that line before, you know, when a rising tide doesn't lift all boats, everybody drowns, right? So you've got, and it's been well documented, with one of those kind of concentrated index market dynamics in history in terms of the top five, right? And I put that tweet right. out. So, so you have this interesting, I'd argue, sort of cognitive dissonance, right? So you've got this narrative that AI is going to take over the world. NVIDIA ends up being one of the biggest beneficiaries along with some of these other mega cap companies. It's going to lift everything up with it. But the reality is the other parts of the marketplace, like retailers, consumer stocks, you know, all these areas have been small caps, right? All these areas have been weak. Now, maybe that's residual of the regional bank crisis, but it does seem to me that there's very different stories being told versus the price action of anything that's not the top seven. Right. Well, you just told the two stories, which is you have a few companies that are wildly profitable, that are more financially solid than the U.S. government, and produce enormous levels of capital, which they distribute to shareholders, and are now, let's say, like 30% of the overall economy is basically like five or six companies, right? So like you have to own them, which people own them, but it's also like they're kind of like almost like monopolies, right? I mean, so they sort of dominate 
Like when you look at Apple's earnings, it's just an insane amount of money they make every quarter. It's just like insane in business history. And then you've got everybody else, let's say the 495 other stocks. And everybody else still works in the regular economy where the Fed has jack rates up to five and a quarter and might keep going for that matter. And we've got consumers that are caught between, you know, mostly having good jobs and earning good money, but now seeing the price of a lot of things go up, whether it be travel and fun things or just food. And so a lot of the gains people have made in the last few years have sort of been offset by costs, but it hasn't stopped their spending. It's certainly a Disneyland, but it's stopping their spending at Target now. And so what we're starting to see is that people are making choices. They would rather go out this summer and have fun than, let's say, buy, you know, another, you know, I don't know, pair of shoes or something like that. So we've seen it in retail where retail has been weaker and the consumer is like weaker in certain areas, but then in travel and entertainment and restaurants, it's like off the chart busy. And so we're seeing a rotation in the economy because people are making choices. It's not just like a flat out growth environment. So those choices create winners and losers in the stock market. And part of that is just related to rates and the cost of many goods. And then you go into like real estate and the price of cars, you know, like everything got more expensive because of the Fed. And and that's having its effect of slowing the economy. And that's why you're seeing so many stocks really not performing. And actually, if you look at the Dow, I thought it was down for the year. The Russell 2000 is down for the year, but then the Nasdaq's up 24% because it's basically like five stocks. And, you know, as a guy who runs a fund, Part of me was like, maybe I should just own like five stocks like my friend Kevin does. And then, you know, like you can make like all this money, but it's like not really a fund. It's just sort of like betting. And then it's like, well, if it goes against you, then you get destroyed like last year. I want to work on that because I think that's sort of why this is such an interesting dynamic. So to your point, right, it's so top heavy now that, you know, in, in quotes, a diversified basket now has idiosyncratic risk. Right, because it's being driven by a few companies. Yeah. So, so you know, from a portfolio manager perspective, right, the only way to beat the average is to choose the right average. Very hard to do that when the S and P is the only game in town, or to leverage, right, right. or to leverage, right, to take on more risk, which means take on right. a bigger weighting, effectively, right. So, right. Know, how do you right. even think about managing risk? Because everyone's so focused on the momentum, they're not seeing that you know everyone is crowding into you know, and making it even riskier to be in the passive industry. Right. This is the challenge, I think as a portfolio manager, as an investor, we all have is that like, as I said, like I own, let's say 35 stocks, but my concentration in my top 10 is 50%, which is pretty normal among, you know, investors who are trying to outperform where your top 10 holdings represent about 50% or more of the fund. In Warren Buffett's case, 42% is Apple, you know, just of his portfolio. And you're like, wow, is he really like managing a portfolio or just like riding Tim Cook's tails, you know? So, you know, concentration has always been, in my opinion, one of the best ways to add alpha better than leverage per se, because leverage has, you know, the negative cost. But like, if you look at like, oh, I'm going to compare to the Russell 2000 growth, I got to have 10% in Google and 10% of Microsoft, 10% at Apple, you know, like, is that really a portfolio? Exactly what you're saying. And so we manage it where part of it is top heavy, you know, like, we are in these companies because they're wildly profitable and they are wildly beneficial to their shareholders. But I also own, let's say, 25 or 30 other companies that range from a very small cap, you know, or let's say a billion dollar type companies or a few billion dollars to the mid caps. 
And I still think there's way better opportunities long-term for investors in small and mid-caps. And that's always been the case historically. But when you're in a government like the one we have today, which is absolutely horrible to small business owners. So I'm a Democrat. Actually, I'm an independent, but I voted for the Democrats. But it is the worst small business environment that I have seen in a growing economy, maybe in my life. They literally go out of their way to hurt businesses every day. And that's what you're seeing in the stock market. Because if you have the monopoly and you're massive and you could pay the government off, like all the big companies do, oh, well, they'll just change the rules. You know, like, okay, no problem. You know, other than this stupid FTC, which is like the worst. But like, you know, if you're a small business and you want to like expand right now, you go into a bank, they laugh at you. They literally kick you. All the banks in California are gone anyways. It's just JP Morgan. So if you don't have a relationship with JP Morgan, it's like, how do I get money? And so small businesses are languishing, and we're seeing that in the stock market. Yeah, which again goes back to the cognitive dissonance, right? Part of it's like, all right, so for AI, for an NVIDIA, for this to be a thing, you've got to presumably have still some kind of buyers, <laughs> right, longer term. And the way from a discounting mechanism perspective, the market's acting beneath the service would suggest that those buyers are in trouble. Now, you mentioned that point about sort of inflation. This is another thing I can't quite get my head around. AI is supposed to be disinflationary or maybe even deflationary, and yet, for the most part, throughout this narrative, yields have risen, right? Maybe that's part of the debt ceiling. I'm not so sure. But inflation expectations right. seem to be maybe even, oddly enough, picking back up again. Who's right, right. in that? Is, is the bond market internally in fearing more inflation right, or is the AI narrative right? Well, it turns out the economy is stronger than what most people expected. I mean, most people, including myself, sort of are like, okay, it's just a matter of time until the economy rolls over into a recession. And that's been the narrative for months now. And that just hasn't happened yet. And then I was out this weekend and I'm looking around and I go, the economy's not in a recession. I mean, we're just not in a recession yet. But everything is pointing that direction. And so this is all rate driven. You know, I think we have to keep in mind that we've set a whole new paradigm in rate expectations now. We've created an exact opposite philosophy than what we've had since the 90s, where globalization and outsourcing was like the key to higher profits and, you know, like lowering your costs and disinflationary to now onshoring all these businesses and having a protectionist policy towards America, which is inflationary. So having jobs in America that pay well is inflationary, but it's also good for the economy. And so you have to create this balance. And that's where I think the Fed has erred with this 2% idea, which is arbitrary. You know, they just decided that 2% is the inflation rate that they think is best. But in my entire career, we always modeled 3% when we're playing for somebody's like retirement and stuff. And to have like a good economy that's like growing, it's impossible to have 2% inflation. So you can't have like a really good economy that's growing and 2% inflation. It's more likely going to be closer to three. And so it's like the Fed's like hell bent on destroying the economy, basically, and turning it into what we have post financial crisis, which wasn't like a natural economy because it was artificially depressed by the enormous deleveraging that was happening post financial crisis. So now we're in a whole new era, and the Fed's working on a playbook that doesn't work for this era. And that's why we're seeing so much pressure on the small businesses and why you see these divergence in the markets. Because if Apple needs to raise money, they pay less than the Treasury right now. But if, you know, mom and pop who owns a small shop and they want to expand to two shops, they can't get a loan. 
And that's the environment that we have today. So once this changes back and the Fed begins lowering rates again, we'll see the small caps and the mid caps really pick up. Yeah, I think as I put that poll out, I said, you know, what's more likely large caps catching down to small caps or small caps catching up to large caps? And it was, you know, kind of like a 30-70 split, right? Most people thought large would catch down to small. And, you know, a lot of historical cycles would suggest it's more likely. I mean, it's interesting. I think what's yeah, but it's really hard to go call your client and say I'm selling your Microsoft. Oh no, well, yeah, no, like, no disagreement at all, right? And I get it from the advisor perspective, right? I totally. But but it's interesting. I think there are shades of what's happened in 2021 now, right? I mean, in 2021, small caps weren't outright going down, right? But they were going sideways. While again, you had a few select stocks driving the headline averages higher, so it looked like a bull market in 2021. But the breadth really peaked. That's when a lot of the innovation stocks peaked in February 2021. Oh. For all the talk about the return of retail, you know, it happened at the little peak of all the innovation names back then. It's just interesting to, me to see that history is almost repeating, and it's not repeating after like a long cycle. It's you know, with a year in between. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's quite that because you know what was going on in 21 was super unique because of the Fed having zero rates and the government just like giving money away to people which created a lot of imbalances in hindsight, you know, from behavioral imbalances to financial imbalances. And so I, I'm really loath to compare any period of time right now to any period of time. You know, it's like we're in the post-pandemic era. It's been 100 years since we had a pandemic. You know, we're still in a kind of a world war that hasn't ended yet. And we've got the most dysfunctional government in American history, besides maybe in the post-Civil War era. So like when you look at you know, what's going on in here, you know, my God, you know, I, I think it's uncharted territory. I don't know where we go from here. I know that earnings drive stocks higher, profits drive markets higher. And so that's all that matters. And what's looking like is that profits are going to be okay this year and will probably rise in the second half of the year going into 24. And if estimates are right, you know, we're looking at a pretty different decent return to growth in the next you know year let's go back to the idea of you know ai what's real what type you mentioned that you've been using it you know internally pretty much every day it sounds like more like a search yeah. engine i saw some stories about how there are people betting that a chat gpt can can outperform the S&P. So they're using it for stock picks like a chat gpt type portfolio well it doesn't tell you stock picks like if you ask it like what are the best stocks for me to own it'll be like well this isn't you know like what i do and it varies and it changes it's got lots of uh disclaimers you know but where it's super helpful if you're like what are the best stocks in the ai industries and what do they actually do it just gives you a lot of detail very quickly about things that you might need versus clicking on lots of links and spending a bunch of time trying to figure that all out yeah that's fair but talk about just sort of other things that you find are useful when it comes to that side of things. And then maybe just sort of unintended consequences. I'll tell you, my fear with this, I often use this line on Twitter that amateurs look to the right of the equal sign, pros look to the left, right? It's kind of going to the source as opposed to just the conclusion. My fear with this right. is we're going to enter a point in society, never mind investing, it's a point in society where we're just going to take answers for granted and nobody's going to actually think anymore. Well, that's a good point. And I think we already are there. I think that's what the social media companies did was just create information irrelevant of accuracy and then delegitimizes sources of accuracy and legitimizes sources of inaccuracy. And now most people really have to kind of go through their own processes to try to determine what's accurate or not accurate, whether it be on CNN or whether it be on Twitter. You know what I mean? And so I think it's an extremely challenging time for people 
to determine what's accurate or not other than what they actually see. And then even half these videos are doctored or taken out of context. So I, I don't think there's ever been a more challenging time to try to figure out like what's real and what's not as far as news is concerned or information. And that's also where AI could be super helpful by really having trusted sources of actual data as its you know sort of main driver. And that's going back into like whoever trains the AI will get the results from the AI that they want. And that's where it gets like sort of dangerous because you know you're like trusting the people designing this to do it in a way that's beneficial to society and not beneficial to profits, which is what Meta is doing. And so anybody who thinks Meta is doing anything other than figuring out how to screw society with this stuff, you're wrong. That's what they're going to try to do. But people like Google and Apple, you know, I don't think, you know, they get up in the morning and they want to make a ton of money, but I think they're also trying to protect their users a lot more than, you know, exploit them. And I think that's where this stuff gets really, you know, crazy, risky. So as far as real world applications, where I see tremendous opportunity in the most obvious one is Google, because Google already knows everything. We already asked Google for lots of information, like how to get from A to B on Google Maps. And Google Maps has never learned anything new since it started. And it still takes me on routes in LA that make no sense, even though it's the fastest way, because the algorithm's like, what's the fastest way from A to B? But it turns out that certain streets in LA, you actually can't drive down for one reason or another. And it's like, you know, it doesn't learn that. And so I think when you start applying learning to applications we already have, like Uber Eats, so Uber Eats should know at this point what the hell I order all the time. And it should just make my life easier and say, oh, it's Tuesday. You typically order tacos and you want Tallulah's again. You know, it's like there's so much application in the data we already have and the information systems that already exist that can make everything more efficient and usable. And that's where I'm most excited about is actually legacy companies like Uber that have tons of data that are very important parts of our lives and very useful that now can become much more useful. And that's where I think AI is going to be really interesting. Like airlines are like the worst at like scheduling, for example. It has they don't know anything. Like it's like a nightmare. So AI will definitely help these people. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Just to reset the room for the remaining minutes, everybody, please make sure you follow Ross Gerber here on Twitter. Let's talk about regulation. There was that, and I, it happened in the blink of an eye, but there was that, you kind of allude to it, that image, I think, of, of AI-generated bomb by the Pentagon, right? And markets kind of sank right, right real quick, and then, well, it's not real. So, you know, so, so there's going to be more of this. I mean, we're only at the cusp of these kind of things. And it's either going to have one or two effects. Either it's going to cause the market to be more volatile. Or people are going to be numb and nobody's going to know what's a danger or not, right? You kind of get rid of the fight or flight response if you don't know if you're actually fighting, <laughs> right, to, fl- to flee, right. right? So how do you think the regulation of the space is going to end up playing out? I was just talking to one of my colleagues who made, mentioned that in, in the EU, for example, there's a law that's either passed or that might pass soon 
that will basically prevent AI from using voices, right, to kind of, you know, doctor different uh, audio. Well, you hit on an issue, obviously, that is already on the Internet with people, AI doctoring of pictures, AI doctoring of music, voice. So this stuff is where, you know, I think criminals, illegal behavior, that's where regulators are going to have the biggest challenges. And, and I think it's more like it shouldn't be legal to make a fake impersonation video of somebody that's hugely negative, you know, that could hurt somebody's reputation. Well, that's defamation. There's laws against it already, but it's the enforcement and the challenges that everybody faces with this new technology will keep, I'm sure, everybody busy for a long right, and, time. And the speed. But right, as far speed's as, a big one too, right? Yeah. I mean, I just, I think this, I mean, it's kind of like every industry, like when the internet started and everybody started like trading drugs and guns on the internet, it was like, oh my God, the internet's bad. We got to stop it because people trade guns and drugs on it. Or same with crypto, you know, it's like the same idea must be bad because the criminals are involved. But the issue wasn't that it was the technology was great. It was just like, oh, the criminals tend to adapt to stuff pretty quickly, you know. And so the government has to keep ahead of things. And I think they're basically the same crimes, you know, they're just like new technology versions of them. That said, I am really against government regulation of technology, because I find the regulators to have no fucking idea what they're even talking about. So if you watch a Senate hearing about technology and they're asking these people questions, they actually don't understand the stuff at all. So having a bunch of regulators that are not experts in technology, it's just a disaster when you're talking about innovation. The government will never innovate anything, and the government will for sure stop innovation if they're trying to regulate it. So I don't I think the people involved with AI need to have some moral ethical boundaries, which they probably don't which is problematic and troubling for sure. But I don't know if government is, say, the solution. Nor did the government protect us from social media manipulation that's been going on for years. So I don't know if that's the solution. You know, so I think this is, I think there's a lot of fear around innovation, as there always was when the world was flat and then the world was round. There was a lot of fear around innovation of like sailing to the other side of that flat earth. and there would have been a lot of regulators that could have gone in and said the ships have to do this and that, but we wouldn't have found the free world if the regulators were in charge back then. And so I just think a lot of it right now, I'd be really happy if my car can drive me to work today and it's got some new software and hopefully it will drive me to work today. But I kind of feel it'll be a long time before the car decides it wants to run me over because it's tired of driving me to work. You know, like that's a, a big stretch. So actually, so I think actually you hit on where the hype is probably the strongest, which is the hype around timeframes, right? That, that it's going to happen right tomorrow. Right. So this is where I, again, this is where I go back to this. I think I have just a problem with the way that people are framing things. A lot of people have noted that, you know, we were essentially on the path to fully autonomous, you know, self-driving cars, you know, from like two years ago. Right. And yeah, the path is still there, but yeah, it's just like everything else. It always takes longer and it's always more expensive than people think. Right. Yeah. It's way harder, way harder yeah. right. In implementation. So, and this is why I think these kind of stories get people into trouble. You know, markets, Narrative follows price. So the narrative now around uh, NVIDIA, irrespective of fundamentals, is AI is going to take over the world. And people are, I think, buying hand over fist on the anticipation that it's going to happen very quickly. But it's not going to happen very quickly. And also because they're in a prime position. There are right, a lot right. of other players. Right, you know? right. Yeah. So, but there is a point, you know, there's a price for everything. And I always go back to, you know, the only question anybody and everybody has to ask when it comes to investing in any stock is, you know, is, is current price overreacting or, or underreacting? 
which is, you know, and that's an opinion, <laughs> right? But like at the core, all investment deals. Well, if we're talking about it, if we're talking about it, it's overreacted, right? I mean, it's, it is what it is. Right. Like I always exactly. say that once right. they start right. talking about my stocks, that's when it's too late, you know? It's like you, you got to own the stocks before people start talking about it. You know? Right. Which, which is why I keep going back to my line that I keep using in a funny way, in a loud way. Uh, Nivity as fuck. <laughs> I'm saying that purely because everyone is talking about it, right? And it's, it can keep going. I get it, right? Right. But, it's like, but, but again, put the portfolio manager hat on. You mentioned you, met, you had a, obviously really good gains on it. Have you been reducing? Do you, does anything change? Take it more from a process um, perspective. So, so look at it this way. We manage money to an allocation. And that takes out the thinking and emotions of like how much NVIDIA or Apple or Microsoft I should have. So the question is, are we raising our allocation to NVIDIA right now? Or are we lowering our allocation? Or are we keeping it the same? And, you know, in my mind, I don't see any reason to raise my allocation to NVIDIA at this time. So our trades reflect trying to maintain the allocations that we're comfortable with in the securities that we own. And so those trades, let's say if a stock goes up 30% in a week, now my allocations are off and I have to make trades that would like put stocks back in line with my allocations. And when you manage money this way, it does help taking the thinking and the emotion out of it, you know, where a lot of people are like, oh, it's, you know, the stocks rallied up, you know, I'm going to double down, I'm going to sell it all, you know. Yeah, like, like Kathy Wood's big mistake, you know, she had all this NVIDIA, and she sold all of it, you know? And now I'm sitting here thinking, you own DraftKings and you own Coinbase, but NVIDIA is too expensive for you, you know? It's like, I don't get it, you know? But that's Kathy. I don't think anybody gets her. But I think when you look at these, like, absolute decisions, like we're done with NVIDIA, the valuation's too high, you've made an absolute decision about a company that will make profits for many years into the future. I've owned NVIDIA for a decade or more, and, like, you know, I have no intention of selling off my NVIDIA just because it went up a ton. You know what I mean? So it's like, I have no intention of selling my core holdings till I die. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, for me, I think investors like overthink this whole process so much. Like if you buy NVIDIA today, you're paying like the premium price. You are buying the finest wine in the restaurant and it's a fine wine. But you better enjoy it, but you better have a long-term time horizon. You see what I'm saying? But it is not outsmarting anybody. You see what I'm saying? And so I think for investors, the idea is to buy low and sell high, not buy high, hoping that it's going to go higher. That's a tough investment strategy. You know, I prefer buy low. So you say, well, what's if I want to be an AI, what companies are not being appreciated enough right now? And that's where I spent my weekend, you know, like, well, there's actually not that many companies in AI that are high quality. And then what companies would benefit the most from this technology? And then are these companies even good anyways? You know, because I I don't love Uber, but I think they benefit greatly from it and autonomy. But I think a lot of these things are many years into the future. So right now, you know, like NVIDIA sells chips and everybody wants chips and they sell autonomy chips and they sell AI chips and their AI chips happen to be what everybody wants right now. And there'll be a time where people have enough AI chips and then NVIDIA will go down 50% again, like last year. And that's NVIDIA. I've done this for 15 years with them, you know, it was like the crypto chip thing, you know, like people were buying crypto chips left and right. And then it was like, oh, crypto stopped. 
and then everybody stopped buying the chips. So it's a very boom bust type cycle. Right. And actually, that's exactly where my skepticism comes in. Right. It's like there's no such thing as a permanently good investment, I'd argue, because there's cycles. No, come on, man. There, Apple has been a permanently good investment, pretty much. I mean, Microsoft, I mean, there's been times, long periods of times that they haven't performed. But over my life, you know, boy. I mean, I'm wealthy because of these companies. You know what I mean? So, like, I can't say bad things, you know. They'll kick me out of my house. No. So, I mean, I think these are core holdings, and you have to own these core holdings, and you don't think about them. But I don't think that's where you make a ton of alpha. I think you make a ton of alpha by finding things that, you know, like, what's next, you know? So, I would think that the healthcare tech space ends up being sort of the next major narrative or, or space. It's, it's huge opportunity. Yeah, let's talk about it. I don't think it gets enough play, but – if you're going to believe in AI and all Definitely this large data, right? I mean, the ultimate thing that people care about when it comes to large data is it can extend their life, right? The actual quality of life is not whether they're more efficient. Is can they? Can you? Can AI help you? You know, with an illness, right? Well, extend the quality of your life, yeah, not just extend your life, right? Right, right. So, 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 have you found some interesting? Are you having your eyes on certain parts of that? That part of the marketplace, anything that's intriguing, not individual stocks, but anything that's kind of been kind of a theme for you to focus on? Well, one one thing that I'm sure of over the next decade is healthcare costs are going to continue to soar with the aging of our society. And the boomers are all now in their 70s and 80s are going to die at some point and they're going to get sick. And they are already and they're filling our hospitals. And there's just so much inefficiency in the medical healthcare system. It's and there's so much data, right? And like, when you, and for some reason, it's still been super challenging for any company to really be good at this. And there's many trying to deal with it. And it's not per se my expertise, actually. I'm not like the medical guy. But I absolutely believe when you start looking at genetic, you know, and sequencing companies like TMO, which we own, and then Illumina, which we're looking at because Carl's been messing with Illumina and Illumina has a lot of potential. It's really been poorly run for quite some time and you look at companies like Grail and the data on cancer screening and you start extrapolating out what can we learn in large data through AI learning about different behaviors, different genetic sequences that cause different diseases and that analysis and the speed of analysis, there's enormous potential. And I think that mostly falls into the pharmaceutical companies. You know, I think it'll be incredibly beneficial. I don't know how much longer we can expand our lives actually. I think it's more dealing with health issues and having a better quality of life if you're sick. And then we can learn so much from different treatments. And like right now, like, for example, they're trying to deal with certain diseases and they use like multiple drugs from different manufacturers to deal with cancer, let's say. And they found some drugs work better with others. But now you have all these different data sets. And so I think when you look at what we're doing with autonomy and and driving, you apply that to healthcare. There's just like an endless upside opportunity, whether you're in pharmaceuticals and research or whether you're in patient application and data or just organization of like how our healthcare system works. So as far as individual names in this, I think this is just like really early in companies like Google and Apple, which is like really getting into healthcare. It's like I'm more excited about that than I am any of the existing healthcare companies. I would be remiss if we didn't talk about Tesla. Uh, and I've had a lot of uh, fans and haters. I've had Gary Black on. I've had several others make some interesting points there. At what point do you think we're going to reach the singularity of people in the view of Tesla as a stock, Tesla as the company, and then Elon Musk is the man behind it? I'm always amazed that 
somehow people can't differentiate among the three. So maybe the singularity is here. But what are your thoughts on Tesla and now that Musk is seemingly backing away a little bit from Twitter, the potential that it resumes its bull run? Yeah, I mean, I've been working really hard. That's kind of like one of the things I've been working on was trying to fix this problem, which I would say I've, I've been more successful than I expected because we did find a CEO for Twitter, which has certainly freed up Elon more time to focus on Tesla, which needs to be done. I don't think it's changed his desire to express his political opinions. And whether you agree with his opinions or you don't agree with his opinions, I don't think his opinions help sell cars. And so, nor does politics seem to help sell anything anymore. So, you know, I think there's a fundamental conflict of interest between his job on Twitter, which is, you know, increasing engagement so he can sell advertising, to his job at Tesla, which is selling EVs and autonomy to people. And we're seeing that. I think Tesla is bigger than Elon in that its mission is now so, and the company is so big and successful that it is bigger than Elon, but Elon still drives the business and he's still the you know crucially important to its success. It's still not at a point yet where Elon can step away and the company would achieve what it would achieve. So it is a conflicted narrative. But when you strip away all the noise and you actually look at what Tesla's doing, there is no other company like it. And I've been there. I've seen what they're doing in battery technology firsthand. I've seen what they're doing in manufacturing technology firsthand. And I've seen and used what they're doing in autonomy firsthand. And there is no other company like it in the world today. And so I think as an investor, whether you like Elon or not, you just have to like except that it's got to be a core holding, you know, that's it. Yeah, and a volatile one of that. I think that's kind of the key thing. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it trades at 40 or 50 times, you know, earnings. And it's a pure AI play. They have a real product that they're selling right now in AI autonomy and wonderful cars, not to mention, at ridiculously good pricing. And so it's like, to me, it's, you know, it's Apple, Google, Microsoft, Tesla, NVIDIA. That's the top holdings of my phone. It's good for a question. 100% agree with you. I think it's extremely troubling. I was reading a statistic today that we have the lowest amount of kids going to college in a long time and the lowest amount of men. I mean, a shockingly low amount of men going to college. And a lot of it is just about cost. And people legitimately saying, I don't want to go into heavy debt to get a college degree. It just doesn't make sense anymore, which I totally get. But yet a college degree is so important today if you want to offset these effects of wealth inequality that are driven by technology and the Fed. So we need to make education affordable for people. That is for sure. I mean, if we're going to deal with wealth inequality, we need to invest in education and in people. But for a kid to go to college and have to spend – you know, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a year on the low end. And as a parent who's saving money for kids to go to college and God forbid he goes to USC, I gotta come up with sixty-five thousand dollars a year. This is insane and nobody can afford it. Okay. And so this is really exacerbating wealth inequality. Secondly, wealth inequality is driven very much so by opportunities for small business owners and immigrants. You know, like people come to this country and if you learn a skill like construction, or you know, electrical or working on cars, you can make a good living. And you see it all over LA. Immigrants come to this country, learn basic skills like that are important and make like pretty good livings right off the bat. 
So if you're going to like really deal with wealth inequality, you have to have a vibrant small business and entrepreneurial environment where people who don't have means can get capital because that's actually the biggest driver of wealth inequality is a lack of capital, which you brought up in what your statement is where, you know, a young entrepreneurial person wants to like start a small business and there just was like nowhere to get capital anymore. And that's, I think, also driven by the Fed and our just completely broken banking system. You know, used to, the banks used to actually lend to small businesses and they actually don't do that today. And they haven't done this for a very long time. They only lend to the guaranteed investments, which are the big companies, but they don't lend to people who could actually make a difference in the community. And so the banking system is the biggest driver of wealth inequality in America. And it's led by Jerome Powell and the Fed. And what they're doing today is a it's just driving exactly what you're saying, a bigger wedge in wealth inequality by making the rich richer and the people trying to get ahead, creating more barriers to that. And that's, I think, one of the worst trends I've seen in America today in business under the Democrats has been this anti-business environment, which is really contrary to the mandate of the Democrats, which is helping all people. And instead, they're driving enormous levels of potential wealth. By the way, real quick, not to interrupt, but I will say just to play devil's advocate, I think the I agree in principle you want to have more people educated, obviously, and that in theory that should help close the wealth gap. But the problem is that we as human beings learn in a linear fashion, right? So going back to AI, it's not going to be linear with AI, right? If it's if it is so so by the time you learn some new skill or are educated on some you know, new industry, suddenly you know technology has already mastered it, you know. Yeah, but I think that's going to hurt higher income people more than lower income people. Like AI is going to hurt the lawyer summer associate, you know, like my lawyer guys are like, we don't need associates anymore. We're going to save a ton of money. Like I can just put all this stuff in and it'll spit out exactly all the law and information I need. And I used to pay somebody $150,000 a year to do that job. So a lot of this AI efficiency is around more, you know, I would say white collar jobs than blue collar jobs. Like we have such a shortage of construction workers. We have a huge shortage of hospital workers. We have a huge shortage of people who are involved in healthcare in general. There's a shortage of people in retail, in the restaurant industry. I mean, there's just a shortage of labor. I can't find a nanny for $30 an hour. I got to go out Thursday night. I will pay $30 an hour for somebody to watch my kids for four hours and I can't find anybody to do it. The AI can't watch my kids, you know what? I, I mean, I guess I could, I don't know, have a robot. Remember, NVIDIA had one of the biggest upgrades of earnings estimates in the history of large cap stocks. So once again, their estimates for 24, are $7 a share. If you do 50 times that, you're at 350. And if you do 50 times Tesla's, you know, it's supposed to do like 350 to at most $4 a share. They're basically trading at the same valuation. I think for a lot of people, they just have to accept that NVIDIA was revalued to a much higher earnings expectation. It's not just hype. It's actual profits that they're saying are going to be substantially higher than what people expected. Well, those people obviously don't go to work at NVIDIA every day and aren't the CEO. So I've worked with Jensen for 15 years, and he's a genius, and he's not a bullshitter. I know how good these chips are. And the fact that they had just ramped production of these AI chips just as this hit, they're just the luckiest company right now. They're just right in the right place, right at the right time. 
And then there's this like massive moment that they're just right in the middle of. It's like the Beatles of stocks. And so it's like, you know, once again, you have to look at what you're weighting in a stock and should you have 10% of your portfolio in NVIDIA at this price, that might be a little aggressive. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But you got to look at your overall portfolio and say, if I don't own NVIDIA, if I don't own Tesla, which are the two most expensive stocks I own, it's like I'm missing the two greatest innovators in the stock. Well, and you're driving so, the, yeah. and you're missing. You are missing the stock market. I mean, this is this goes back to the what's driving the averages. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, like Kathy Wood today is probably like kicking herself, right? It's another twenty points she didn't make, and it's like, do I go in and buy it now? It's like no, so I can't chase it now. So you get in this cash twenty two. Right. For me, I just like to own stocks and I own them for the long term, and it takes a lot of the thinking out of it if you just never plan on selling them. I, I don't know. Like I was doing some math the other day because I'm old enough. Like I'm old now, you know. So like I I remember every year in the stock market since I started trading very clearly, and that now goes back into the 80s. So I can tell you anything about what happened in 1997 if you want to know. I you know like that's why I do this for a living because I was sort of meant to do this. I didn't really want to actually when I was a kid, and but I was just like meant to do this. And so I I can just tell you I've seen these trends from dot com and whatever. There's always hype around these things, and there's always like fraud companies and ones like C3 AI, where you're like, Why do I need to own this company? I don't even know, like, it loses like tons of money, but it just says AI in it, so I'm going to own it. Well, people are going to get burned on these things, but I can tell you because I've been an NVIDIA investor for 15 years that this is a legit company with wonderfully advanced products that nobody else can replicate that are doing not just AI. But they're the leader in autonomy, they're the leader in gaming, and they're the leader in crypto as well. So I hate to break it to you, AI is just one of their things, you know? Yeah, and I want to go to Scott a second for the final question. The only thing I'll say is I always go back to this difference between you know a company being great and the stock being properly valued. That's the question mark. Right. And that's and to your point, you know, it's like people when people say, you know, price is truth, I always question that because price changes every day. Right. I mean, it's, it, that doesn't make right. sense to me that price is truth. It's price is the truth of the moment, but the truth changes. Right. Right. So truth right, exactly. Right. Tomorrow could be down 50 percent. And then there's going to be some new narrative as to why that yeah. happened. And, that's, and then right. and everyone says, right. oh, I saw it coming. And it's like, yeah, that's just the way. That- yeah. It's like Ulta Salons, Ulta Salons, you know, oh, everything's going great for beauty and retail. And then last week, oh, things have slowed and it's down 25 percent. And I'm like, oh, boy, that changed that narrative. Right. Right. No, exactly right. Let's go for the final question. Then we'll wrap up. Well, most technology is deflationary. It's rare to have, you know, something that is supposed to be more productive, but then creates inflation. You know, it's almost like oxymoron kind of thing. But I think it's more like, I think your point's valid. Now, I see the world differently because I'm also in hotels and gaming and casinos, and we're just in a tremendous labor shortage. So this whole concept that we need universal basic income is a fucking joke. What we need is a nanny. I need a nanny. So if you want the government to give you money, how about just sit and play video games with my kids on Thursday night, you know? So we have cut off immigration in this country. And because we cut so much immigration out of our country, we have a labor shortage across all industries. So until that changes, that's inflationary. What's inflationary is that I got to pay $30 an hour for a nanny when I was paying $20 an hour two years ago or three years ago. So labor is one of the biggest causes of inflation, not technology. And what we need is more labor. So this bodes very well, actually, for people who don't make a lot of money because we're seeing their wages rise 
at the fastest level we've seen in a long time, which is what the Fed's trying to stop because their job is wealth inequality, right? And so the, once again, I see AI and these technologies being hugely efficient. If I'm a semi-lazy, college-educated, white-collar worker, I should be very concerned because that's where AI is going to hit. And you saw this kind of stuff at Twitter where Elon fired 80% of the company and the company still works. I can't think of any company in America where I could fire 80% of the staff and the company still works. Okay, mine certainly wouldn't. So it gives you an idea of how many white-collar jobs are going to be lost, especially in technology, over the next five years. It's going to be a very different world for people who don't stay competitive and think just because they have a college degree and they worked at you know, Spotify for six months that they're somehow worth 200 grand a year. And it's just those days are over. On that happy note, I think that's a good place to wrap this up. <laughs> hey, look, listen, if you work hard, you keep learning, you're going to do great in this economy and in this world. It's the best environment for people who want to work hard and keep learning. But if you're just going to sit around and play on Snapchat all day and pretend like you're working from home, those days are over. And I would say amen, amen to that because I think there's a, there needs to be a little bit of awakening on what real work ethic means. in this yeah. yeah. Well, those days are over. I'm telling you, you might not like what I'm saying, which is fine, but I can just tell you what's happening. Those days are over. Okay. So you're going to have to, if you want to make a high income, you're going to have to earn it. These days are over. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Make sure you follow Ross Gerber here on Twitter, and hopefully I'll see you all a bit later. Thank you, Ross. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.